the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. We're going to talk about COVID-19 tonight. What a surprise. And with us, we have a returning guest. uh, And I know our listeners enjoy listening to Dr. Dan Vegas. Dan, thank you for joining us, as always. Okay, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here again. I never thought we'd be spending this much time talking about COVID-19 and the variants that flowed from it. But um, what, what is going on with the uh, the variants and uh, how, how are we looking? Well, uh, here's what I want to talk about. Um, what, what, what do the numbers really mean? Uh, first of all, the efficacy you hear about means the, how effective uh, the vaccine performs. But it's an ideal, tightly controlled conditions that are part of a uh, medical research study that defines efficacy. Uh, the same word is used for medications that produce a desired effect, as well as vaccines that prevent uh, disease. Uh, effectiveness is another term that's thrown around, but has a little bit different connotation, as that refers to the performance of the vaccine in the real world, where you and I live, not the research study. That's less. Uh, carefully controlled, and uh, there's less than ideal conditions when you do study it. So when we hear about efficacy when an article is published and it first comes out, that's that's interesting to know, and that's very good to know. Uh, The effectiveness is really what affects the people in the real world because our conditions are not the same as those carefully controlled in the research studies. The original tests were done to test for people who were positive for COVID and showed at least one symptom. Uh, No tests were ever done at the beginning um, that uh, led to these emergency uh, authorization for these vaccines that tested asymptomatic people. Um, Now that time goes on, we do have some data that shows. Now, to to begin with, let me say that the... um, the vaccines that we we have, the Pfizer and the adenovirus vaccine, um, uh, AstraZeneca, uh, are, are the two that are, are used worldwide most uh, uh, con, uh, most effectively. And the Pfizer and the Moderna are the two mRNA vaccines here in the U.S. And each one of them was about 94, 95% effective um, uh, in, pre, in preventing symptomatic disease. Um, way back, it took a while to um, to do, get the numbers, but you could say that the Pfizer and the Moderna were probably 90% effective in preventing um, symptomatic and asymptomatic infection because there are some people who became infected, we found out later, were asymptomatic. So 94% for the Pfizer in effectiveness. 
uh, and Moderna way at the beginning and about 90% effectiveness in, in preventing uh, um, asymptomatic and disease and, and symptomatic disease. Now, the adenovirus, which is used, uh, the AstraZeneca used in the UK and Europe a lot, was about 74% effective against symptomatic disease. And um, But what, what what's happened? Um, Everybody was excited when these vaccines came out. Uh, the president said by the end of the summer, Tony Fossey from the CDC by, said by September, the kids will be going back to school and we, we may be lucky and back to normal. What went wrong? Because we are not clear of the disease. It's, it's surging now as bad as it ever has. And um, we have to be just as careful as we were back a year ago. Well, number one, that nobody foresaw the reluctance in people to get vaccinated. Uh, when 50% of your people get vaccinated, that you don't reach herd immunity. It doesn't. The, the, the virus doesn't die out. It doesn't go away. It just keeps proliferating because it constantly has a reservoir and a group of people, a population it can um, infect and spread to others. Number two, we've got this Delta variant which is a lot more transmissible than before. What's the Delta variant? Well, the Delta variant is a a, um, mutated um, COVID virus that was first showed up in India, and it came here by people traveling from India to this country. Um, The spike protein varies on each one of these variants, and its ability to attach to the human, the ACE receptor in the cell varies depending on exactly the configuration of that spike protein. Well, the spike protein is different enough that bamlamivibab, which is a monoclonal antibody produced um, to fight the the, um, alpha and beta variants and the wild virus in the hospital once they're infected, and it was very effective in um, in inactivating these viruses. Well, it won't even attach to the Delta uh, spike protein because the spike protein on the Delta variant is so different because of the mutation. So that's a game changer. Everything's changed uh, about this. Now, the antibodies were very, very good when you did the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Um, they are very, very effective against uh, um, all the uh, the other variants and the wild-type virus that originated back in 2020. However, they're about three to five times less effective. The, the levels are three to five times lower of antibody versus the Delta variant. So the Delta variant, number one, is more transmissible, attaches to the cells more readily, more transmissible. And... Um, what uh, what else does it do? Well, it it if you have the Delta variant, you're five times more likely to require oxygenation. Um, and if you're in the hospital, you're if you're 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 more likely to need the ICU department, and you're more likely to die. And if you group those together, it's about five times increased uh, the need for oxygen, the use of ICU, and your chance of dying. There's no ex- excess risk for these old alpha, beta variants, which were around for a long time, because they're very, very close to the wild-type virus that started way back in 2020. What else do we know? Well, Well, before we move on, just on what you said, with regard to the Delta variant being more transmissible and being five times times more likely 
that cause someone to have O2 needs and ICU needs and so on. Uh, what's the breakdown between people who are vaccinated versus people who are not vaccinated? You're still better off getting the vaccine. In uh, a study recently that was reported uh, in Los Angeles between May and July of this year, uh, one-fourth of the infections were in vaccinated people. But only 3% of vaccinated people were in the hospital. 7% of those unvaccinated were not in the hospital. And this is because of the Delta variant. The ICU admissions, about one-half percent of the people in the ICU were uh, um were uh, half percent of those vaccinated were in ICU. You are three times more likely to be in ICU if you're unvaccinated, and you're about two and a half times more likely to require mechanical ventilation. So it does protect you. It's the best protection from this Delta variant that we've got. It's not 100%, but no vaccine is, but you're far better off getting vaccinated than if you uh, don't. Uh, the infection rates... Uh, are four, five times higher uh, in vaccinated. In um, uh, the infection rate is five times higher in those not vaccinated, and hospitalization rates are 29 times higher in the unvaccinated. So you're definitely far better off if you're vaccinated. And here's what happens: some people say, "Well, you know, I was infected, and I've got antibodies." And, uh, well, that's true. You do have antibodies and you're protected to some extent. But uh, let's see, what's, uh, let me get these numbers so I get it right. Um, if, you, uh, if you are recovering from COVID and get vaccinated, your levels of antibody are 100 times higher than they would be if you were just infected by the COVID alone. So the vaccine increases your antibody levels 100 times. And if you recover from the COVID and you get vaccinated, it's 25 times. The levels are 25 times higher over than the level if you by vaccination alone. So the people who have recover from the disease, get vaccinated, have a super immunity because we do know that the higher the level of the antibody, the better your chance of protection from the virus. Now, we don't have an absolute level to say, okay, this is the safe level versus this level. Uh, the higher the level, the more likely you are protected. No level seems to give you 100% protection. But the higher the level of antibody, the better off you are. And those people who recover from the infection and get vaccinated, um, they're going to they're gonna lose their immunity eventually, just like the rest of us will. But uh, they're far better off getting the vaccine than they are just recovering from it by itself because your antibodies are 100 times higher after vaccination in those who recover from the COVID infection. And we also know that pregnant women are better off getting it. About 3% of those uh, vaccinated get sick with the virus. It's not 100%. But you're five times more likely to get the virus if you're unvaccinated and pregnant. And um, those people, um, there are some problems with the fetus. Um, Well, let's hold up on on that. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Dan Magus concerning COVID and the latest information concerning where we are. Uh, important stuff to hear, so don't go away. We're uh, on The Advocate. This is Nick Phillips. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. We'll be right back.
And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back to another segment of The Advocate. This is Nick Phillips, and we're talking to Dr. Dan Magus concerning COVID and what's the latest thing on COVID at this point. We're talking about mid-September 2021. And uh, Dan, thank you for joining us as always. Okay, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. In the last segment, we were talking about the effect of pregnancy and what happens with pregnant women. Uh, what you were about to mention something about fetuses. What? what well, to, to some face. extent, uh, small amounts, but they, they're, you're definitely more likely to have an uh, a earlier delivery, uh, smaller baby for size. Um, more, little more likely to have a stillbirth, more likely to have neonatal death. The numbers are small, but there is a, a significant increase in uh, serious uh, um, problems uh, when you deliver or or even maintaining a uh, a viable pregnancy through, uh, throughout the nine months. So, so there are some problems with early deliveries, uh, stillbirths, and neonatal deaths. Um, the babies uh, are affected by this in the same same way their mother is, to some extent. So, uh, women who are pregnant are far better off for the sake their own sake and for the sake of the fetus to um, to get the vaccine for those two reasons. Are, is there any hesitancy we're seeing with regard to pregnant women, or are they pretty much on board with the recommendations? Of what I understand is the. They're uh, getting the vaccine fairly well and accepting good, it fairly good. well. Uh, with re- before we talk about some other things, you mentioned uh, earlier monoclonal antibodies. Antibodies, yes. Uh, Once a patient yeah, is admitted the term, to the that's, hospital. That's a newer term. What's going on? Okay, these are uh, antibodies that you can produce against the spike protein. So when, once you're infected, either as an outpatient, you can be injected with this. At, uh, these monoclonal antibodies are already there. You inject them into the vein, and they, they attach the virus to uh, the spike protein and make it in, the virus incapable of attaching to a cell. Um, if you are in the hospital and you have a lot of this virus running around your bloodstream and it's early enough in the disease process, if you can bind up these binding sites and stop the virus from replicating within the body, you might be able to mitigate. You might be able to decrease the severity of the illness. And there are some monoclonal antibodies that have been given in the hospital, and people have seemed to recover better. They, they get off the respirator. People are seriously ill. They get off the respirator out of ICU, and they're less likely, better, faster, and they're less likely to die. So um, we use uh, some of them been improved for outpatients. The trouble is that you have to be given it either IM or intravenous, and they're extremely expensive. You can do them in the hospital uh, because it could be life-saving. Uh, and, uh, but if you have a variant like the Delta where the uh, spike protein is very, very different because it's mutated, it may not attach to some of these uh, monoclonal antibodies as well as it, the, uh, the other variants do. Um, in fact, that one monoclonal antibody that I re- referred to uh, it um, it doesn't bind at all. So um, it just, the only reason I bring that up is not because bamlumivabam, not because people should remember the name. Is that 
uh, just to give you an example that it's changed enough. And here's the problem. We lost the race is what we did because of the reluctance to get the vaccine. This Delta variant just came up, has a survival benefit um, over the other variants, and it just became the dominant strain. And um, the uh, if we get another dominant, it, but it's still but it's still affected by and still um, uh, can you you can still prevent disease from the uh, Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. But if we get another mutation or a second mutation or a third mutation down the line, we may find out these vaccines not only work less, they may be totally um, inappropriate, totally uh, useless uh, because these uh, variants become so mutated, um, we may have to get an entirely new vaccine and start all over again. The only, um, we, uh, we, everything's pointing to the fact that our immunity is starting to decrease. It decreases in people with natural infection. It's, it's decreasing in people six to eight months after um, uh, after uh, your vaccination. And it, the antibody levels on the average decrease about 6% per month. So eventually it looks like your levels will be low enough that your chances of getting the disease high enough that a booster would probably be a good idea. Necessary? What's necessary mean? It's a good idea to help boost the immunity. We don't have a level that you're 100% safe, and we'll probably never have a level that you're 100% safe. Would there be any negative side effects in taking a booster if you hadn't had any side effects from taking the original vaccination? So far, it doesn't look like it's any different, no. No. Um, And... what I wanted with the to do is give ahead. you an idea so what some of these side effects are. Everyone knows sure. about the sore arm, the uh, the fever, the achiness, and the joint pains and things like that. But there's a few uh, there's a few serious ones like myocarditis that we and we have this the, the Israel study studied it very very carefully. Your relative risk of getting um, uh, myocarditis is about three times increased. But there aren't many people to get it to begin with. It's 2.7 events per every 100,000. So for every 10,000 people, you get about you get about two. Yeah, In any of that, here's, here's what I want to do. Um, the the myocarditis effects. is two events per 100,000. Uh, no, so far, there were no deaths. There were about 742 cases that they reported. And although it is real, uh, sometimes you get pericarditis with it. The um, uh, people do get over it. There's another thing called lymphadenopathy, lymph event, uh, swollen lymph nodes. Now, swollen lymph nodes by themselves are not very dangerous. It just shows that there's some inflammation in the body. Seventy-eight events per hundred thousand. That's seven per ten thousand. Kind of, kind of negligible. But um, uh, and eventually, and that doesn't cause any serious problem. Uh, it's interesting that. Um, you're twice as more likely to get appendicitis, actually. Uh, but that comes down to five cases per 100,000. And herpes zoster, 15 cases per uh, 100,000, or 1.5, one or two every 10,000. Herpes zoster is shingles. And it's definitely increased risk, uh, 43% increased risk. But the, the events are very small, very, very few. Does the, shingle, does the shingle vaccination... Uh, 
interrupt that possibility? I uh, can't say. can't say. Um, the shingles vaccine uh, is more uh, oriented toward the uh, chickenpox virus, and, uh, uh, and this is a totally different virus, so it, theoretically, it probably won't protect you, but uh, nobody's ever looked at that to, to figure it out. But the vaccination protects you about from acute kidney injury, intracranial hemorrhages, decrease the chance of anemia because you don't get the disease and you don't get these things from the disease. So there's some definite conditions that you're protected by, from just getting the vaccine. Um, when uh, the the, the COVID-19 cause, the, the actual infection causes all these same things. It can cause appendicitis, herpes zoster, myocarditis, and more likely to do it than, um, than, uh, than the vaccine. So being afraid to get the vaccine is not really, for these reasons, is not really a, a, a very um, uh, wise choice because what you're going to say, I'm not. I'm afraid of myocarditis or, or getting shingles from the vaccine. You're more likely to get it if you get the COVID. And many of these people are out there without masks. They're they're uh, they're not vaccinated. They're in groups, enclosed and in close quarters. They're far more likely to get it, um, get these complications from the COVID themselves. So. It makes sense only to avoid the vaccine if you're going to hide in your house, stay away from everybody. When you do go out, absolutely mask and never never get involved in an indoor group. Um, uh, other th- risks with infection, not only the myocarditis, pericarditis, arrhythmias, deep vein thrombosis, the pulmonary emboli, heart attacks, myocardial infarction, and intracranial hemorrhages and low platelets are all far more likely after the um, the natural infection. Um, like I said, the vaccines protect you against intracranial hemorrhage, anemia, acute kidney injury. Anaphylaxis is a problem that some people are worried about. But with the uh, Moderna and the, um, and the Pfizer, it looks like five events per million. That there's now uh, that's, that's that's increased over that the flu, which pretty, is one or two per million, but five right. events per million of those vaccinated. So the chance of that is very very low that it's going to happen, and it's very treatable. And well, by, very bottom treatable. line is we want everyone to get their vaccinations sooner, yeah. and the more of them, the better. Doctor yeah. Dan Megas, thank you so much for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you. Have you, you on very well. Have you on next month. Pleasure to be there. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, at this time in the month, we're now celebrating, not celebrating, we're recognizing 9-11, New York, Washington, Shanksville. Uh, with us tonight, we have uh, someone who is actually at Ground Zero back in New York City, back on the uh, 11th of September of the year 2001. Uh, Michael Letts. Michael, thank you for joining us tonight. It's always my privilege to be with a show that's doing so much to improve the lives of Americans. 
Well, it's very important that we take the opportunities to do that whenever and however possible. Uh, 9-11, something for us people who were there and around when that happened, we all have our stories as far as what happened when we first heard of what happened. And um, anyway, with with regard to you, first off, tell us about yourself. Uh, how are you involved in first responders, and what what was your career leading up to 9-11 of 2001? I have been involved with law enforcement for over 30 years and have been a chaplain as well with the various agencies as well as a firefighter and continue to actually hold commissions in all three. But uh, we first saw the images begin to come across on that fateful Tuesday morning of September the 11th. My training instinctively knew that this would be an overwhelming hit on the agencies, NYPD, NYFD, and others. And they would not be able to handle this crisis without the outpouring of support that America is so greatly known for. We are a nation that has a spirit of unity and support in time of crisis. And so we immediately began to plan what would be the next phase. Of course, it made it more difficult because air transportation was shut down and you would need to uh, get there on your own driving transportation-wise. Now, a lot of agencies sent fire trucks and other equipment later, but we knew that it was important to get people on the ground as quickly as possible. So within 48 hours, we were within New York City. Imagine coming up on the scene. I tell people, it was devastating, I think would be the best word, at the magnitude of what had transpired. Those that were can hear my voice know that either if they're first responders or not, if you see a house fire, et cetera, there's residual afterwards, there's, there's debris, et cetera. But this was not debris. This was literally 20, 30, 40, 50 feet or more in the air of rubble, knowing that there were thousands of people that were either trapped in that rubble. Some of them might still be alive, and in fact, we did get some out. Uh, majority probably would not be. But knowing that time was of the essence, realizing the amount of labor and effort that would be required to save whatever lives might still be available, it was it was overwhelming. It was daunting. People could just look at you and kind of think to themselves, this is just not doable. But that's not the American spirit. That's not the spirit and our values that we in America have. We take challenges. We have strong faith. And we believe that we will work until the issue is accomplished. And that's what I saw in that spirit. And I saw a gracious spirit in the city of New York for those days that we were there. And as difficult as it was to be able to not just perform search and rescue as a firefighter, but also as a chaplain to provide grievance and crisis counseling for those, especially for the children who are trying to see, where is my mama? Where is my daddy? And, of course, some of those were from families of officers. I mean, the greatest comfort I took was being able to tell them, you know, your mama, your daddy's a hero. Mm-hmm. They made sure that other people were able to live, and that's what we do. And that's what they, I'm sure, trained you to do. Tell, tell me about the, the write-up, because you're from South Carolina, right? 
Yes, sir. And you came up with a group of people from from your area. Were they all first responders? Were they all police? Were they fire? Were they were there other chaplains or who were you coming chaplain. up with? I came up initially. The quickest one we were able to grab hold of were chaplains. So we initially took a group of chaplains who were also, and some like myself, law enforcement or firefighters, and we made that initial trip. And, of course, the great thing about it is you can trade off. You just drive it straight through. Now, when you're driving up, you're driving, like, in, in marked uh, fire vehicles or police vehicles or in private cars? No, marked. Uh, we did get permission from the agencies to use the uh, vehicles that we had been assigned to us. And, my, uh, next question, my, my next question is, as you're driving from South Carolina to New York, what was that drive like? And uh, I'm, I'm assuming other drivers on the road who saw you in that that fire vehicle knew exactly where you were heading. What, what was that trip like? And I will tell you, it was somber, but it was, again, and I, I used this illustration before. Yes, it was a grievous day knowing that my brothers and sisters had sacrificed their lives to save the lives of others. But it was also immense pride, knowing that they were able to accomplish what we're trained to do. And it was that same spirit as you traveled and traversed along the road to New York. People knew where you were going. They waved. They were friendly. They were somber. But they were very respectful and very grateful. And uh, that's defined. Well, we went through, the entire nation went through that trauma together in various ways. But but when you got up to New York, uh, how what did you do? How did you report in? Was there anyone to report to? It wasn't. They were still in the process of trying to put implement the strategic plans. Of course, every agency has a rough plan or an idea, but we knew where to go, and we knew it didn't take but a second to figure out the locations that had been set up as trauma centers. And once we reported in and they realized who we were, we were welcomed with open arms. You know, I, I find this, your listeners may find this ironic. I had been to New York previous times in the past. Uh, I was a, a competitive weightlifter, so we'd had some competitions there, et cetera. And I always had the impression, you know, I'm a Southern boy. And I always had the impression that, you know, uh, New Yorkers were perhaps somewhat abrupt, I think maybe an appropriate word. Certainly mm-hmm. not as friendly as but all that was dispelled on that day. They had a whole different attitude, and it was just a, a camaraderie, a brotherhood. Thank you for being here to come help take care of us. And uh, that spirit is what transcends everything else across America. As as a chaplain and uh, coming upon all the carnage, uh, this this horrible thing that happened so suddenly with all the deaths and everything, uh, how? Who are you responding to? Who are you providing chaplain services? Survivors, I assume. Uh, survivors and family members and co-workers. Yes, uh, without question. And I, I tell you, what was interesting in notes and reflection afterwards. Of course, of me having uh, experience at all three chaplain, law enforcement, and firefighting, we made the determination we had to assess the situation. What were we best needed to work? We best helped to begin with. Right. Well, a lot of things you will see when you go into natural disasters, people come in and want to loot, want to flood, you know, want to gawk, et cetera, et cetera. 
there wasn't that situation here. People didn't want to be there. They wanted to be away from there. You, uh, if you were going in, you were going in for a reason. There were not floods of people going in. So the point I'm making is that the people who were there were there for a specific reason. They were looking for a loved one. They were looking for those that uh, first responders who had responded. They had a specific reason. So you knew that the people you were dealing with were there for a purpose. And what was that purpose? You were trying to help meet the need of that purpose. It was to find loved ones. We're doing our best with search and rescue. Uh, but we also know that you're going to need some grief counseling because uh, the outlook of finding a lot of survivors was not was very dismal from day one. Well, that and that sort of stayed, you know, throughout the whole course of the rescue and recovery. There, there wasn't much rescue. Uh, the uh, I understand the hospitals were set waiting for casualties that never showed up because you either got out or you didn't get out of the buildings. That was. That is correct. Like I said, we we did have a handful that we rescued that were survivors. And, of course, it brought great uh, joy and uh, enthusiasm when that occurred. But the spirit, the grimness was uh, like a cloud over you because you really realized that that was a great exception, not the rule. And the vast majority we were there, too. In fact, we began to realize it wasn't even just to recover bodies because uh, most of the bodies have been decimated. To- totally <laughs> destroyed. We're, we're going to take a short break. We're, we're talking to Michael Lutz, the first responder from South Carolina who responded to New York City after the Twin Towers were, were destroyed on 9-11. We're going to be back talking with Michael about uh, his uh, recollections and his experiences in New York on that uh, day during that time. We'll be right back. We'll take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be right back. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. We're talking tonight to Michael Lutz. He's a first responder from South Carolina who, after 9-11, he responded shortly after the incident up there as a chaplain, firefighter, and law enforcement officer to help out. Mike, thanks so much for uh, talking to us tonight about 9-11. Well, thank you. Once again, it's my privilege to be able to discuss this with your show. Well, thank you for your services in leaving South Carolina and running up to New York to go into that that danger zone up there. Uh, When when you got there, as we were talking during the last uh, segment about the fact there weren't survivors, or there are a couple of survivors, maybe a small handful of survivors, but by and large, the carnage was was terrific, and people were uh, looking for, for loved ones or information for loved ones. We, um, my daughter lived in Manhattan at the time, and uh, she still works in Manhattan. But I remember going out there to visit her shortly after and uh, walking by the fire stations and seeing the fences that were loaded with photographs of loved ones asking, have you seen this person? It was heartbreaking to see that. Um, I, I would assume that as a chaplain, you had the chance to talk to some of these family members who were looking for... Uh, family members who they were never going to see again. 
Uh, how did that go? Yes, uh, that is accurate. We actually lost count on how many family members that we talked to. But the question was always the same. Um, what do you think? Is there any hope? Um, do you think I'll ever see my loved ones again? And of course, you have to be careful. You don't want to give, you want to give encouragement, but you don't want to give falsehood. And you let the family know that, look, first and foremost, these are American heroes or the finest anywhere in the world. And they are doing night and day, 24 seven, many, many without breaks, uh, to determine to provide an answer if one is available. Uh, it is a grim outlook. I think we can, we can all tell by looking that the outlook is not going to be favorable. But I will tell you this, it, he brings out the best in the spirit of America, and it brings out the best in those that are trying to help their neighbors. And you will certainly be the recipient of neighbors reaching out and helping. And uh, at the end of the day, our faith is what sustains us. We do not know the purpose behind it, but God is still in control. And you need to take comfort in the fact that um, together he will give us the strength to take it one day at a time. And that's what we would tell people. Not now, not today. We, we haven't found anything, but we will continue to search. How did you do? Did you get anywhere near burnout after seeing person after person, possibly hundreds if not more people, going through the same psychological trauma of losing loved ones without ever having to say goodbye or being able to. How, how did that affect you? Yes, it has a permanent effect. I mean, um, it's something you can't erase from your memory. It's something you can't erase from your mental condition. You know, uh, being around such negativity certainly brings you down. But there's always ways to counter that. And when you realize that I'm doing something that I love doing, which is helping people, and that's what I would stress to your listeners, these true American heroes talking about our first responders certainly don't do it for the pay. They certainly don't do it for the accolades. They do it because they love to help people. And when you begin to realize that even in this grievous time, you're having the opportunity to help countless families, it gives you the sustenance to be able to continue to move forward and to put a spin on the negative thoughts that you're having and say, you know, we're making a difference. We're making a difference. When when you got out there and you saw the magnitude, the number of people who were involved in the search and rescue and recovery efforts, uh, what, what did you see with regard to the ability for them to coordinate in communications? And, and what, what was the fallout from this whole 9-11 situation with regard to communications and things like this? Sure. Well, I think that's one of the things that's most predominant in the reports of the 9-11 Commission is the lack of interoperability. And uh, most people really don't give it any thought, but agencies, and we're talking about nationwide now, most agencies have the ability for their folks to be able to communicate with within their department. And uh, really don't have ability to communicate to other frequencies, to other agencies. What we have found out over the years, especially on larger scale, is one agency certainly can't handle any kind of situation like this. They depend on agencies literally from across the country to help. And it would be one thing 
Nick, if the technology wasn't there. But the technology is there to allow interoperability, to allow frequencies to be channeled into one uh, particular goal so that we can all hear and all communicate at the same time. This costs us the lives of first responders there at 9-11 because when the communication was given to evacuate the building, not all agencies were on the same frequency. Not all agencies got that communication. And, of course, a lot of them who got it probably would not have heated it anyway, probably would have stayed to try to get a few more people out. But still, it was very disappointing that our agencies couldn't communicate one to the other, and that really hampered the ability to have a good coordinated effort. And we see that it's problems still exist today. We have um, 9-11, I mean, the uh, infrastructure bill that is being considered the $3.5 trillion. There's nothing in there to deal with the infrastructure for interoperability for agencies. And that's one of the things that I tell folks is that has to change in this country is the perception that has developed over the last 15, 20 years about our first responders. They've been vilified. They've been denied funding defund the police. They've been denied equipment, denied protective gear. And that's the thin blue line that's going to be there if this comes back again. And quite frankly, with the debacle in Afghanistan, first time I've ever seen America is not being put first, but being left behind enemy lines. Many things I think are coming out now. What is our government has changed its priorities and objectives and has not been truthful with the American people. But I think what we're going to begin to see is that now that we have a base in Afghanistan, once again, in fact, one of the most highly equipped bases, uh, $85 billion worth of equipment we left behind. We have porous borders that will allow terrorists to easily get in and infiltrate America again. We will see terrorism attacks in this country again, and it's that thin blue line that's going to be there to defend and a thin red line to help provide the rescue. We've got to change the attitude. We've got to start supporting them. We give them the respect, equipment, and the financing they deserve if they're going to be up and doing the job. You know, you mentioned Afghanistan, and, and I think we look at Afghanistan as being a center for terrorism, at least for the nurturing and support of terrorism. And I don't think the terrorists are done with the United States yet. Um, are we prepared for another terrorist attack? We are not. It's very easy to answer that question. We are not. With the attitude that we have seen trying to destroy our first responders in state and local regions by defunding, by not giving equipment, by creating policies and regulations that make it impossible to do their job, no, we're a long way from being ready. But yet we've now been thrust back into that limelight it's coming, folks, and we better change our mindset and start changing our priorities if we're going to survive. Well, that's why preparation is so important. Other, otherwise, when something terrible happens, just reacting to it is uh, it's not preferable to being prepared for something. So let's let's hope we still are, are able to do that. Uh, I just want to throw out something uh, about you: is that you have a company that seeks uh, donations, and provides bulletproof vests to law enforcement and other first responders. Thank you for doing that. What's the name of your company? It's, it's a public charity, a national charity called Invest USA. That's I-N-D-E-S-T-U-S-A dot org. It's a charity, dot O-R-G. And we raise funds to provide protective equipment to agencies in need 
Currently, 92% of officers nationwide do not have active shooter vests. Those are the vests that are able to protect it from medical rounds. And that's just one aspect of many things. There's interoperability. There's other things that need to be done. It's time we take the role of first responders seriously the way it was intended to be and make sure that we give them the adequate resources to do the job that we depend on. I I agree. We, We can't just think of them when we have these great tragedies, and it may happen again. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate your, your insights and recollections. Thank you, Nick, and thank you for what you do, and God bless America. And I, amen to that. And thank all of you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning And only my mind for company The Advocate is sponsored by Nick Phillips and is responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.